So glad y'all are here. You can be seated. Y'all can be seated. Welcome to the house of God. It's Christmas time. Christmas time is here. I don't know the rest of the words. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. We're, we're at Christmas time and we're going old school, Old Testament. We're continuing our prayer series, which is going to take us all the way through the end of the month of January and take us through the Christmas season and into the month of January. And then we're getting right back into the series that we began earlier this year called Exposing Jesus in the month of February. We're picking up in that with the topic of calling. Everybody say calling. I really believe that God has placed something on my heart for where we are going as a congregation, but also where we are going as individual believers. It's really important for us to lean into our calling, not just our choice to be a believer in Jesus. It's extremely important that we as believers recognize that, that at the moment we receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, we have received a responsibility. And so many times we overlook that. So I believe God's really speaking to us in that direction, but he wants us to start off in learning how to communicate with him, which is why we are in this series called prayer. Have y'all been enjoying this so far? Man, it's been absolutely awesome. It's getting thick and God is doing some great things. So the reason I had you sit for the reading of the word today is because we're going to read a lot. Uh, I'm going to read a a couple of verses to get us in this, and then I'm going to kind of talk you through some context, and then we're going to end up in just a few verses right around uh, verse 30, around verse 40, like somewhere in that range is where we're going to be. But I'm I'm going to lay down some foundation so you can see exactly what God has for us today. Before we get into that, let's give a big welcome to all of our family in Kenya. We love y'all. All of our family all over the world in Australia and other parts of the United States, people in Finland and other parts of Europe, we love y'all. Glad that y'all are joining us every week and enjoying what Jesus is doing and all the people that live in the New Orleans area that are still scared to come to church. We love you, even though you don't love us. But anyway, just kidding. And if, if this is your first time here, we're so glad that you are here enjoying what God is doing. I don't know if Madison, Madison, I am so proud of you. Praise God. That is amazing. Praise the Lord. So real quick, 1 Kings chapter 18, I want to drop into verse 21 real quick, and then I'm going to give you some context, and we'll get back into the word here in just a second. Verse 21 of 1 Kings 18 says this, Elijah approached all the people and said, how long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? Hmm. I could just preach right there, but he wants me to keep reading, so I'm going to. If the Lord is the true God, if the Lord is the true God. In other words, you may not understand that the Lord is the true God, but if you believe that he is the true God, then follow him. Look at your neighbor and say, duh. But if Baal is, in other words, if Baal is the true God, let's follow him. But the people 
did not say a word. Very similar to what you're doing right now. Because <laughs> you don't know what in the world we're going to talk about today. We've been in this series on prayer, learning how to communicate with God and learning that there are prayers that are effectual and create very, very dynamic results. The Bible says that the effectual fervent prayer of a person in right relationship with God has a great and dynamic impact that continues the King James puts it, availeth much. That E-T-H means it goes on continually without end. So the more that a person in right standing or right relationship with God, the more that you and I pray from that position of right relationship, the more that that prayer is effective. And it doesn't stop being effective just because we perhaps stop praying that particular prayer. Herein lies the problem with going and getting prayer books and reading prayer books because those are not effectual fervent prayers. Those are just somebody else's thoughts about God. And while they may be really good to read, and a lot of times they are, when we start praying other people's words, what we do is we disconnect ourselves from what God wants to do in us through that personal intimate intimacy that he has with us. Does that make sense? So this is what prayer is. So the prayer that we're going to learn about today is simply the offering prayer. Offering prayer. Everybody say offering prayer. Now, some of y'all just got nervous, and you're like, we did Heart for the House last Sunday. This is not that kind of offering, so relax. Y'all already gave, and it was awesome. By the way, let me just tell you, not only did we go beyond where we went last year, we went more than double what we did last year. The highest Heart for the House offering that we have ever had, and I just, man, that is so awesome. Uh, give yourselves a hand, because that is just amazing. Praise God. And if, if you don't know what that is, this is the only time of the year that we receive a special offering. We do it the first Sunday of December, and church, y'all blew the doors out, and it was just, it's fantastic. I can't wait to see what God does through our generosity over the next 12 months. So this is the offering prayer, not that kind of offering. Look at your neighbor say, not that kind of offering. Okay, cool. So let's dive into this. He, he, Elijah is the man of God, and he is approaching the people, and he says, hey, y'all, y'all have been standing here in a position of indecision a long time. In fact, you've been standing in this position of indecision so long that you've gotten stuck here. You're paralyzed. And sometimes it's easy to feel like that in our walk with God. Maybe it's because we've drifted or maybe it's because we, we've allowed other things to come in between ourselves and God and we find ourselves not moving forward. It's like we're paralyzed. We try to move, but it's like our whole body is encased in quicksand and we can't move. Do they have quicksand anymore? They used to have that on the Lone Ranger show all the time. I don't know if quicksand is even a real thing. I've never seen it driving through the tough streets of Elmwood, but I'm sure that quicksand still exists somewhere. But you feel like you just can't move. You, you try to lean in. You try to obey. You try to talk to God, but you feel paralyzed. And there's a lot of reasons that this can happen. And one of the reasons it can happen is what we see here in the story of God's people, both the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah at this particular time. They were God's people, but they had divided over some sectarian things and they were living separately. They were living under the rule of two different kings following two different visions. By the way, anytime you have more, more than one vision speaking into you, that is called division. 
There's only one vision you need to listen to and if somebody else is speaking into your life and is trying to distract you from the vision God has already put over you, you need to say, no, I'm not going to hear that because that's going to create separation. You can't follow where God's going if you're trying to chase two different stories. By the way, he's already preaching. So God's people are separated. And at this particular time, they are under the, the rule in, in, this, in the nation of Israel. They are under the rule of a man named Ahab. Ahab, the Bible talks about in chapter 16, he was the son of, of the king Omri. Omri was one of the worst kings that God's people ever had. He was evil. He did a lot of very, very evil things. And then his son Ahab comes into rule. And the Bible says this about Ahab. He was worse than all the other kings up to this point put together homeboy was jacked up his leadership was not godly his leadership did not follow the voice of God in fact he joined himself in marriage to a priestess of a pagan god for political reasons and financial reasons her name was Jezebel you probably heard about her and he aligns himself, and when he does this, not only is he living outside of the realm of God, he has connected himself intimate, intimately to something that has no knowledge or even desire to lean into God. Somebody hear me. When you join yourself in with something that does not chase God, you're inviting idolatry and debauchery into the house of God. You say, into the church? No, into the house of God that is you. What? Know you not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are the house of God. Be careful what you join yourself to. Be careful what you allow yourself to be intimate with. Because things can begin to happen that distract you. Like, what does this got to do with prayer? Hang on, we'll get there. So Ahab did some very, very horrible things. He built a temple to the pagan god Baal. And in, the, in this temple, not only did he have a temple to the pagan god Baal, he erected what the Bible calls an Asherah pole in the pagan god of Baal, or in the temple to the pagan god Baal. And like, I don't know what any of these things mean. So let me break it down for you real quick. Baal is the pagan god of pride. Everybody say pride. Anytime you think you're better than somebody else, anytime you, you think that you are, are able to look down on them for any reason, anytime you say, look at what I've accomplished, anytime you say, look at what I have, sound like our society? By the way, there is a pagan idol of Baal that rests right outside the U.S. Capitol. It was built a few years ago and erected, and we wonder why our society is so messed up. It just looked pretty. Oh, it's cool. It looks like the ancient. No, you don't understand. You have just created a shrine to something that is all about humanism and all about the person and not about the God who created the person. And the pagan god of Baal is all about pride. Asherah was another pagan god. In fact, there were three primary pagan gods that had influence over the people at the time, not because they were actual real living things, but the teaching of this paganism was very prevalent in this particular day and age. There was Baal, and then there was Asherah, and then there was a third one called Mammon. Jesus actually directly bumps Mammon when he says, you can't serve two masters. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other. You can't serve God and Mammon. So these are ones that are recognized in, in the word of God. God himself even recognizes that these thought processes have influence. Asherah was the pagan god of lust. Everybody say lust. 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. This is where we see Asherah playing out. And what they would do is they would worship pride. They would have temples to Baal, and they would sacrifice to Baal. And then they had an Asherah pole. You may have seen something that's very similar if you grew up in, in Louisiana or anywhere there's a lot of Native Americans because there's a big part of their culture that still actually worships the Asherah pole. They call them a totem pole, but it's literally the same exact thing comes from the same exact place. This is the pagan god of lust, the lust of the flesh, which we understand. We get like, it's all that sexual lust that's, uh, that's associated with that. Then there's the lust of the eye. I see it, I want it. And I'm not gonna stop until I get it. And then the pride of life. You see, lust is intimately connected to our pride centers. We want what we're not supposed to have because we want to feel good or look good or appear good. Mammon is the pagan god of money. Not money itself, but literally greed and the desire for more and more money and the trust of money and the desire just to have wealth over anything else at all costs. So these are the primary three influences that were impacting God's people at this time. Is this okay? You, you learning anything? It's okay we do a little Old Testament Bible study. I wish I had a flannel graph like they used to have in Sunday school. I also wish I had some of them cookies that they used to bring to Sunday. But anyway. So this is what Ahab, the king of God's people, sitting on the throne, anointed by God to rule, he brings in pride worship, he brings in lust worship, and he brings in greed worship. And then he marries himself to the high priestess of pride. Not a really good, beautiful picture. Like, what does this have to do with Christmas? Absolutely nothing. But it has everything to do with prayer. And God calls a man named Elijah and says, I want you to go be a thorn in the flesh of Ahab until he just gets so frustrated he doesn't know what to do. And right around the place that we began to read, if you get down in, in, into the, the, the middle of chapter 18, right around verse 17, 18, right in there of, of chapter 18, you see that God tells Elijah to go talk to Ahab. He says, I want you to go tell him that the famine that I put on the country because of his bad leadership, by the way, leaders, hear me, if the people you're leading are hurting, look at yourself first. Don't always see them as the evil person. You have to do self-examination before you throw stones at anyone else because it might be your leadership. God tells Elijah, I want you to go to the king and I want you to tell him that I'm about to bring rain. So he goes and he does this and God proves himself in a very, very real way. But in the middle of this conversation, before the rain comes, Elijah says, I got to go see Ahab. Ahab meets him and goes, hey, you're the guy who's causing all the problem. Isn't it interesting that when we get filled with pride, we see the people of God as being the problem instead of recognizing that we're the issue. And Ahab sees him and he calls him out. And Elijah says, hold up, bro. You can't throw any shade at me. You're the one who's done all of this. You're the issue. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a showdown. You got to hear me today. Somebody needs to have a showdown with the pagan God of pride, lust, and greed that's been living inside your tent. Because it's not going away until you confront it. But here's the deal about the enemy. The enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That means I'm just going to make noise. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to make noise to scare you. 
What does Jesus say about the enemy? You resist the devil and he'll flee from you. He's nothing more than a playground bully. And we think because he's got a big voice and that he's got all these fancy, fancy power. He has no powers that God hasn't given him. Stop giving him glory and you need to learn to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Back to our previously scheduled sermon. Elijah's talking to him. He says, like, here's what we're going to do. I'm confronting your idolatry. I'm confronting your paganism. And we're going to have a showdown. I want you to go get all the prophets of Baal that you have hired and that you pay every week to just do sacrifices to a non-existent deity. There's a bunch of them. But there's only me standing up for God. I want you to get them, and we're going to have an appointment. And then he turns to the people, and he says, Hey, y'all, it's time to make a decision. If God is God, it's time to follow him. But if he's not God, it's time to follow someone else. You hear me say this often. If he's not God, then what in the world are we doing here? But if he is God, why don't we trust that what he says, what he does, and where he's leading us is exactly what he wants us to do. Let's stop chasing all these other ideas and accept the fact that God is God, always has been, always will be, and he's still moving in the same way he moved back then. Praise God. He says, so here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to have a showdown. We're going to have confronting, dueling church services. I'm going to let you do your thing. You can take as long as you want to. But when you're done, it's my turn. And the God who answers by fire will be the God that we serve. And the people went, giggity, giggity. So let's move on down to right around verse 30. And what has already happened in this, in, in this point is these pagan high priests have spent all day long gyrating, going through their religious rituals, cutting themselves, yelling, screaming, falling out on the ground, blowing on each other till they fell over, making stuff up and calling it God. Mm. They went through all of the motions trying to get the attention of a God who does not even exist. And the whole time, Elijah's sitting over there making fun of him. I love Elijah. He's awesome. Maybe he's on a trip. You should yell louder. <laughs> the King James puts it, maybe he's indisposed, you know, because that's real formal language. In other words, maybe he's sitting on the throne right now. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you should... Dance a little more. Maybe you should keep going through the motions to try to get more attention on yourself, to try to attract the attention of a God that is dead and will never hear you. Just keep, Maybe you're not doing it enough, and they just kept going. And the, the ground was already bloodied from their self-mutilation and all this stuff. And he's just sitting over there laughing at them. They get done, they're like... <sighs> Okay, Elijah, do your thing. Ain't nothing going to happen. It is a bad crowd today, let me just tell you. Verse 30, Elijah does this. He says, approach me. Tells all the people, yo, come here, come here. Come gather around. I'm going to teach you something real quick. So all the people approached him. I want y'all to hear me through this because I'm giving you some stuff 
that you're not going to just get if you do surface reading. But I'm really speaking forward to the direction that God is leading this congregation over the next 12 months. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. Okay, we, we see this. We see him repairing the altar. We're like, oh, got to rebuild the altar. And you're right. But notice what he did before that. He called the people together. I'm going to mess with you. I'm going to get up in your stuff here real quick. Is that okay? Can I pastor? I love you, and you can have all the coffee you want when I'm done. You can't build the altar by yourself. And while you do need to have a prayer room at your house or at your job or in your car, there's only one location that an altar is supposed to exist, and that is at the house of God. Because the altar is congregational, not individual. The problem is we start building altars for ourselves to justify spending time by ourselves and not with other people. You're not supposed to bring sacrifices alone. You're supposed to bring sacrifices with your brothers and sisters to the altar that God has anointed. Why did he have to repair an altar that had been torn down? Because kings and generations and centuries before, the kings that led them away from God said, we don't want to worship here. We want to worship in other places. And they tore down the altar of God and started establishing their own version of what it was supposed to look like. Is it any wonder that when you get into the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrew church said, hey, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as some do. But all the more as we see the day approach, we need to come together. Why? Because what happens at the altar is extremely important. What's really, really, really important is to know that God is not going to move until an altar is built. We want God to move. Anybody need God to move in your life? But he's not going to do that until we first build an altar. Verse 31, I want you to see this. Then Elijah took 12 stones corresponding with the number of tribes that descended from Jacob to whom the Lord's message had come. Israel will be your name. Verse 32, and with the stones he constructed an altar for the Lord. I'll pause right there. Why 12 stones? Well, we see clearly it represents each of the tribes of Israel. But at this point, they were not living as 12 tribes. They were living as 10 tribes and two tribes. It was two kingdoms. They were living in division. They were living in isolation. They were living following two different ideas. And the very first thing he, he does when he comes to this moment, he says, we're going to rebuild the altar of God. But in order to do this, we have to come together. You can't build the altar of God chasing a different vision. Well, we're all part of the body of Christ. You're absolutely right, we are. But not every vision is for every house. And if God planted you in this house or God planted you in another house, you need to chase the vision that God has rested on that house because that is the vision that's going to affect your life and bring you into your calling. You can't get there by yourself. The very first thing he does is rebuild the altar. And in building this, he brings the nation back together because community is vitally important for the outpouring of God's power. Let's continue on with this. 
in the middle of verse 32, around the altar, he made a trench large enough to contain two them of seed. In the Monty Living translation, two big old bags of seed. I went to Christian school. We didn't learn what a sia is. But because I was in Louisiana, I learned what a big old bag of something was. So there we go. In other words, he builds the altar and then he cuts a trench around the altar. Now, if you search through the Old Testament, all through the ceremonial law, you will not find any place where God said, build a trench around the altar. In fact, when they were sacrificing, blood just went everywhere. There was no trench to catch anything. So why is he doing this? Let's dig in. Let's find out if there's more. He arranged the wood, cut up the bull, tell him I said hi, placed it on the wood. Then he said, Fill four water jars. Whoa, wait, wait. We're having an altar service, needing fire, and we're getting everything wet. There's nothing in the Word of God that's accidental. I'm going to show you something here in a second. Fill four water jars and pour the water on the offering and on the wood. The offering is in place. The altar is built. The collective tribes have come together symbolically in this. The congregation is here. We place the offering on the altar. The wood is there in order to house the fire. We got our trench for whatever reason, and now you're pouring water all over everything. What in the world are you doing? And why four? You would think one would be enough, right? Let me peel back a layer here. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 10, 11, and 12, Paul is teaching the church, and he says, there are four gifts that Christ gave to the church. Some people call it the five-fold ministry. If you read it contextually, it's actually only four gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. Some people divide that into two, but in the text, it's actually one. Pastors and teachers are one and the same. If you believe five, cool, nice, it doesn't matter, It's not salvational. But you need to hear this. There are four jars of water that the congregation needs in order to be the vehicle of the power of God falling on the sacrifice. It's not accidental that there were four jars of water. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. You need to hear me. And if, if you're not a member of NOLA Church, just earmuffs real quick. I'm, I'm going to talk to NOLA Church real quick. You need a pastor. And if you're chasing another pastor to get their attention, you should probably go to where they are. Because I can't lead you. Because you can't experience the power of God in this house, at this altar, without following the teaching and the leadership that God has placed in in front of you and underneath you as a foundation and around you as protection and over you as a covering. It's not a power trip for me. I, I promise you, I would rather be doing something else. Like, I got four kids. I don't need more. But God said, I'm calling you to do this, and I take my job very serious. And as we move into 2022, we are not going to be chasing other visions. And let me just tell you, I'm, I'm going to clear the deck. I'm saying it in front of everybody so no one thinks and takes me out of context. This is where I'm going. And if you're not going with me, don't ask me to meet with you. Because I don't have time. 
Because I'm chasing a move of God. You've heard enough preaching. You've heard enough. It's time to stop chasing another vision and start chasing the vision that God has placed over you to pull you into the house of God so that you can be in touch with the power of God. Like, pastor's mean. No, that's not mean. That's not mean at all. That's loving because I don't want to waste your time because when we get together, all I'm going to do is talk about the vision that God has given me, all right? So here's where we're at. He, he begins to pour over the altar of sacrifice. He begins to pour over and say, I'm going to pour four things over it, four things of water. What does water represent? Water represents two things in the, in the word of God. First, it's potential. It's a place that God can use to do something. It becomes the platform of God's demonstration. But water also represents baptism and anointing. Notice this, as we have that understanding, when he had done this, in other words, dumped all four jars of water, he said, do it again. So they did it again. Then he said, do it a third time. So they did it a third time. Why? Why three? Why were there four jars? And why did they need to be dumped out three individual times over a sacrifice that was supposed to catch on fire? Because nothing in the word of God is accidental. Nothing in the word of God is standalone. It all connects and all points to God's ultimate plan. And when God took his people out of the nation of Egypt, which in biblical terms represents life outside of relationship with God, it represents a life of sin. When he takes them out of a life of sin and he begins to take them into the promised land, which represents the, everything in a relationship with God that he has for us, he takes them through three strategic stopping points between the nation of Goshen and crossing the Jordan River. The first one is the Red Sea. The second one is the bitter waters at Myra. The third crossing is at Jordan. Each one of these represents one of the elements of baptism. The Bible says there's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but that one baptism has three individual parts that are vitally important for everything that God wants to do. The first, the Red Sea baptism represents repentance. You cannot go where God's taken you if you're not first willing to change your mind about where you've been. Repentance has to take place. The second stop was Myra, the bitter waters at Myra. Why did he take them there? Because up to that point, they'd been complaining, saying, I wish we had never left Egypt because at least there we had good tasting food. You got us out here in the middle of nowhere. There's no salt. There's no garlic. There's no onions. It's just dirt and whatever that plan is. And God said, okay, here's what I got to do. I got to get the taste of Egypt out of you. So I'm going to take you to Myra and at Myra, all the water has minerals in it. I don't know if you've had a steady diet of mineral water. But it creates a reaction within your body. And what is in your body is going to come out of your body. Because the minerals flush you. If you're going to do a cleanse, if you're going to do anything like that, you know, you start in the new year, all the resolution people are here, you go. You got to start off with something to clean you out. I, I have resolved that I like me. I am who I am. <laughs> Ain't no fixing me. But anyway, I'm just kidding. I am working on a few things. But, <laughs> but, but here's the deal. If, if, you're, if you're going to start with a cleanse of some sort, you need something to flush out what's in you. 
And the bitter waters at Myra cleanse them internally of their taste of Egypt. Water baptism into the name of Jesus, just like what, what she just went through. And what we're doing again next Sunday, I'm so excited about that. Joseph, it was a year ago next Sunday, right? Praise God. Praise God. When you go into the water, it, that's not a religious ceremony. What that represents is you having left Egypt, having gone through the Red Sea, repentance, repentance experience to the bitter waters of Myra, and when you are buried in the name of Jesus, everything that was your past is flushed out of you, and you are cleansed. Then the third baptism, when you cross over the Jordan, you're entering into the promised land. You're entering into that place of relationship. Why four jars? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. Why three baptisms? Repentance, water baptism, and filling with the Holy Spirit. Nothing is accidental. It all connects. It all points to this. Because here's the deal. If you want the power of God to descend on the sacrifice that you are offering up to him, you need to prepare the space. First, you need to get into the house. You need to get back into the community. And you need to say, I am a part of a family, and I'm linking up with them. Bind us together, and let's make an altar right here together. And when we do this, we're going to completely saturate ourselves with potential so God can do his thing. In fact, saturate us not once, not twice, but three times so we can make sure and get ready for everything God is going to do. The water flowed down all sides of the altar and filled the trench. Now we see the point of the trench. Have you created space in your story for the anointing? Or do you just go through the motions? Three songs, check. Prayer time, check. Pastor Olga talks in the high voice and we feel God move, check. Post my little scripture picture on Instagram, check. Jesus fish on the back of my car, check. Hebrew tattoo on my forearm, check. Three meals a week at Chick-fil-A, check. <laughs> Christmas decorations from Hobby Lobby, check. Like, like here's the, I'm not making fun. I'm just, do we use these things as check marks and our altar is not even built? Have we created room in our story for the anointing to have a place to dwell? Maybe it's time to push some things out of our lives. This, this isn't for all of us. This isn't for everybody. Not everybody's ready to do this. I know this. But this is where God's taken Nola Church over the next 12 months. What are you ready to push out of your life so you can have more anointing in your life? Have you dug a trench or did you just go through the motions? Verse 36. When it was time for the evening offering. I love the way the King James puts it. When it was time for the evening sacrifice. There was a morning sacrifice and there was an evening sacrifice. These were two distinct times of day that God set aside and said, I want you to meet me in these moments. See, the, the morning sacrifice that was God's had been filled up with pagan ritualism. 
Elijah said, no, I want the evening. Because before the sun goes down on this story, we're going to set things right in the house of God. When it was time for the evening offering, Elijah the prophet approached the altar and he prayed. And I want you to notice something about the offering prayer. He prayed with confidence. He prayed with assurance. And he was firm in his resolve. Nola Church, no more non-denominational, sissified prayers. You don't need me to pray for you. You need to pray with me. When it's prayer time, you don't have to talk the whole time. But at some point in in, in your prayer time, you need to learn to open your mouth and learn the power of speaking your prayer. Because when you are in relationship with God and you begin to speak your prayer out loud, hell wakes up and goes, oh God, what is going on? I don't know about you, but I need hell to say, oh God, about me. He approaches with confidence, assurance, and he's firm. And here's what he says. Remember, they have gyrated and religiized. I made up a word there. And they have gone through the motions all stinking day long. Elijah just says, oh Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is he doing? He is appealing to the identity of the one to whom he speaks. Do you know who your God is? Do you know him by name? If you do, approach him with his name. Jesus, I know you. We're on a first name basis. I have confidence. I know, like Job, I know my Redeemer liveth. I know I may be going through hell right now. I may be in division right now. I may need a power of God moment in my life right now. But I know who my source is. Oh, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gets gets burly right here. Prove today that you are God in Israel. Because I already said, if you're not God, we're not following you. Prove it. But I want you to do something more than that, God. Prove yourself and then prove to these people that I've been in contact with you. When's the last time you asked God to validate himself in your life? Are are we too passive because we've been chasing a God of pride or a God of lust or a God of money? We don't really want that much attention on us, but here's the deal. When you know who your God is, God can use you as an instrument of righteousness in the middle of a dark world. And when he proves himself, he's not just going to randomly prove himself. He's going to prove himself through you. But you have to be available. Prove that I am your servant. And I've done what I've done by your command. Hey, don't get mad at me. I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do. If you haven't heard from God, don't say that. If you haven't heard from God, maybe it's time to sit down and wait until you have. Maybe it's time to go back and work on the altar a little bit. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord God. Answer me. Just in case you didn't hear me the first time, I'm going to need an answer. 
I put myself out here. I'm going to need an answer from you. I'm going to need an answer, Lord. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are the true God. Notice that he didn't say, answer me so I'll feel better about my spirituality. Notice he didn't say, answer me so I'll have that word that I'm so desperate to hear every 15 minutes because I don't really know who I am in Christ. He said, answer me so these people who you planned me in front of and in the middle of will know that you are God and that you are winning back their allegiance. Okay, this is the prayer. This, that, that's it. No ceremony, no gyrations, no cutting. No ancient rituals. No sage. Tony, I'm going to keep coming for you on that because that was so funny. No other forms of Christian mysticism. Just, I know who you are. I know who I am because of you. Prove it. I don't think you got it. I know who you are. I know who I am. Prove it. It's not that simple, Pastor. You don't understand my story. You see, I went through... Stop. You're chasing Baal. You're chasing Asherah. You're chasing Mammon. Either he's God or he's not. And if he is, why don't we stop chasing these dead things that don't exist and start chasing the one who is living, breathing, and awesome and never ends? I know who you are, Jesus. I know who I am because of you, Jesus. Prove it. Prove yourself in this moment. That, my friend, is the offering prayer. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about who he is. It's all about what he's doing. I want you to look at verse 38, and then we're going to step out. Then fire fell from the Lord, or then fire from the Lord fell from the sky. Notice what it did. It consumed the offering. Remember that thing that they brought to the altar? You got to bring an offering to the altar or God has nothing to consume. It consumed the offering. Then it consumed the wood, the thing that holds the offering. The structure. Hear me. Have you structured your offering on who he is and what he wants to do or on somebody else's idea about him? When you begin to pray who you are and who I am because of you and you ask him to prove it, he's not only going to consume your offering, he's going to consume the thing that your offering is resting on, the stones and the dirt and the power and the fire of God licked up the water in the trench. And when the people saw this, they fell on their faces and they went, there is no God but our God. No pomp, no circumstance, no hype. This is good stuff, but we're not biting chunks out the ceiling. But here's the deal, y'all. 
There's only one more service in 2021 for NOLA Church. Actually, there's two. There's next Sunday morning and the next Sunday night. Can't forget candlelight. I have to sleep on the couch again. But after that, it, it, this year's done. And we're going into next year with a very clearly defined vision, with very clearly defined steps. And here's, here's where it starts. He called us to the prayer room. Why the prayer room? Because he called us to rebuild the altar that has been torn down. He didn't call us to prayer rooms. He called us to the prayer room. He's not calling us to multiple altars. He's calling us to one. And he's asking us to bring our offering and rest it on the altar that's built on his identity and his plan. And then he's challenging us to challenge him. And I promise you, when we do this, the fire of God is going to fall. What is the fire of God? Is he going to burn the building up? No. The fire of God is, always represents the power of God. You see the fire beginning to fall again in Acts chapter 2. When the fire fell from heaven and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and then they spilled out of the comfort zone and began to affect the world like wildfire. That's what they called it. It's, these people are changing the world like wildfire. And here's the deal. The fire hasn't stopped burning. The problem is we keep trying to build other altars and start other fires. He said, no, 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 no. I planted you in this house on purpose. And if this is your first time here, I'm not trying to proselyte you. If you like what we're doing, if you like our coffee, we'd love for you to come be a part of us. If you feel like God's leading you here, welcome home. We'd, we'd love to have you on the team. But if you call this place home, it's time to rebuild the altar. It's time to get rid of all the other stuff. It's time to get rid of Baal and Asherah and Mammon. And we're just going to focus on Jesus and who he is and the altar he called us to build. And here's the deal. We're not even going to worry about it. We're just you're God. We're not, but we know who we are. Prove it. Because you see, the God that I pray to on Thursday night reached down and touched a man who could barely walk. You don't, yeah, you can clap on that. That's okay. It's okay to clap for miracles. Two weeks ago, Devin couldn't have sat through a whole service in that chair because he would have been in so much pain. But he sat here and he worshiped. And here's it is it okay if I use you as an example? Too late, I already am. You see, every time Devin would come into the house of God and worship would start, the enemy would hit him and the pain would get intense. But God anointed somebody to take dominion over what was messing with you and Thursday, God broke its chains off of you. Why did this happen at the end of the year? Because I believe God is getting ready to do radical miracles in this house over the next 12 months. But we're going to have to build the altar. So here's what I want to do. Every eye closed, every head bowed. I ask nobody moving around. Let's bring the lights down. We're going to go back into worship. Because this is how you prepare the altar. We go into a place of worship and what we're doing is we're, we're bringing us back together.
if you're here right now and you're ready to take that step of faith and reestablish the altar in your life to follow Jesus and follow his vision, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand to your feet and I want you to get as close to this altar as you can. I don't want to single anybody out, but I want you to come down. If you want to chase God's vision and you want to rebuild the altar, before you leave, spend a little bit of time here at the front of this building and we're going to spend time in his presence and God is going to begin to do some things. If you're ready, here's what I want you to do. When you get down to the front, I don't want you to ask God for anything. I just want you to throw your hands up in the air and begin to tell him who you know he is. When you get down here, I want you to say, Jesus, you're greater than anything that I am. You're greater than any circumstance in my life. You're greater than anything that I've faced. You're greater than anything I thought I knew. You're greater than anything that I've gathered. You're greater than any of it, Lord. You are the God of heaven and earth. You are the creator of everything. You are the alpha. You are the omega. You are the beginning. You are the end. You are the first. You are the last. You are God. Let's just spend a few minutes worshiping him because of who he is let's just take some time right here come on let's lean in everybody let me hear your voice as you're crying out to your god come on begin to speak who he is begin to speak who he is in your life